This morning we're starting a new month uh, and a new set of three of the Buddha's teachings. And these are the three pillars. This year we begin by reflecting on the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, in January, February, and March. And we follow that with the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, in the spring. We just spent July, August, and September contemplating the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. So we're ending the year with an exploration of the three pillars of our tradition, giving, ethics, and wisdom. In Pali, that's Donna, Sila, and Panya. As you might think, when you imagine pillars, all three are necessary for balance. If we cultivate only one or two, what we are building may be lopsided and fall down. The pillars of Donna, Sila, and Panya hold us upright, as wholesome actions will do. They offer spiritual strength and benefit not just us as individuals, but they benefit the whole world. As we say in our community statement every Sunday, freeing our minds of greed, hatred, and delusion offers the opportunity for others to do the same and reduces ignorance and hatred in the world. So you can see we're ending on a a positive note um, for the year. I'd like to start my talk with a recording from NPR that I was listening to when I first began thinking about this talk a few weeks ago. Maybe some of you heard it. It's from StoryCorps, a StoryCorps broadcast from 2015 and re-aired on September 22nd this year. I was thinking, okay, generosity, ethics, wisdom. How did these all go together? And then I heard the recording, and I thought, there they are, all of them. Generosity, ethics, wisdom in this story. We used to start our Sunday sits by reading a story that would illustrate our topic. Some of you uh, might remember that Tawari, our co-guiding teacher at Sims would often start her Sunday sit talks with a recording. So in the spirit of this tradition, I'm going to offer you a true story about a man named Brunel Cotlin from the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans. It's called A Grocer Rebuilds His Community, One Shop at a Time. So I'm going to screen share. Do you see a picture of two people, I hope? Yes? Okay. And this is Burnell Cotlin with his mother. And this is from a recording from 2015. And so here goes. Years of StoryCorps by reviewing classic conversations from the past two decades with updates. Today, a story from New Orleans and the lower last two decades with updates. Today, a story from New Orleans and the lower ninth ward. That neighborhood was hit. Can you still hear it? Okay, I hit my 
silent button Ask button. food restaurants and dollar stores. Okay, and then sorry, I hit my... building on an empty block and open... Just a, a second. I'm going to go back because I hit my silence button. Let's see. Okay, let's try By again. classic conversations from the past two decades with updates. Today, a story from New Orleans and the Lower Ninth Ward. That neighborhood was hit hard by Hurricane Katrina and slow to recover. Almost 10 years after the storm, it still didn't have a single grocery store. Lower Ninth Ward resident Burnell Cotlin wanted to change that. He saved money by working at fast food restaurants and dollar stores, and then used it to buy a dilapidated building on an empty block and open a neighborhood grocery. In 2015, he told his mother, Lily, how his story started in the days after the flood. I remember coming back home. That was the first time I cried. We lost everything. Yep. I was in that FEMA trailer for almost three years. And I drove around the night ward. We didn't have no stores, no barbershops, no laundry room. There's nowhere for people to go buy a loaf of bread. Right. You have to catch three buses to get to a store. And I always was taught if there's a problem, somebody got to make a move. So I decided to open up a grocery store. I remember when I first bought that building, everybody thought that I was crazy. When I peeked in the door before you started working, I said, this is nothing but junk. I mean, it was trash and debris on the floor that you had to crawl over. And, and how can you make anything out of this? But you were one of my very interesting signs. <laughs> Always jump into things you had no business doing. <laughs> it was hard. It was real, real hard. And those eight-hour days turned into 14, 15 hours a day. But what motivated me the most was seeing the people that was walking by with the groceries and seeing them get off the bus with all of those bags. That made me work harder. We finally did the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and that day I would never forget you served the very snowball. first snowball. And the first customer cried because she said she never thought the Lord Nightwood was coming back. You saw something that I didn't see. I'm glad you, you took the chance. It was a headache back then, but now it's, it's, it's all worth, worth it. It was all worth it. And if it takes me to do it by myself, I'm going to put one business at a time back into the Lord Nightwood. Because it's home. My name is Burnell Cotlin, and I'm here with my mom, Lily Cotlin, also known as Number One. N number One, do you remember when we first did Story Call? Yes, uh, 2015, I think. How have things changed since then? Some things has not changed. The Lord Nightwood is still stuck in 2005. Because you know, when you turn on the TV, what you see? You see Bourbon Street, you yeah, see the you Saints. See you see everything's living good. Take 10 minutes of ride to the Lord Nightwood. There's still no banks. There's no doctor's office, a dentist's office. We have none of that. The only thing that changed is my little building. We have a barber shop, a sweet shop, and we now have a laundry room. Everybody come there to the store because there's nowhere else for them to go. Do you remember I told you about that day? They had that little girl behind the grocery store because it was already after dark. Yeah. So I had to ask why are you at my building after dark? And she said, I had free Wi-Fi. She came yeah. over there to do her homework. So I said, no, I got to fix this problem. So the next thing that we're doing 
is opening up an internet lounge. Mm -hmm. I'm extremely happy about that. You had lots of different obstacles, like Hurricane Ida or COVID. Why did you stay open during those times? Because there was many people that was doing much worse than us. I remember, I ain't going to say the lady's name because she still shops today, but it was an elderly lady. She had her grandkids with her, and she had a gallon of milk and some candy, some chips, you know, for the kids. And she attempted to swipe the card, and it declined. And she stood there and cried. Now, I did something I wasn't supposed to do, but I did it anyway. I came from behind my counter, and I gave a hug, because at that time, we were supposed to have the six feet distance in between us. And I told her, take the items, feed your grandkids. When you get your money, come back and pay. And then I started seeing that again and again with a lot of other customers. So I got a journal and I wrote down names and uh, the items they had and how much it is. When they got the stimulus checks, some people did come back and they, they paid it. And I still have that book today. Yeah, you're carrying your community strictly on your back and sometimes I worry about you. Is there anything that would make you just give up? Nothing. I'm not a quitter. If you can see the look on some of these customers' faces begging for something to eat or a job, it hurts. So some days I'm madder than a six-shooter. And then other days I, I cry and I have to sit in my car for a few minutes and get myself composed because I have to be positive for everybody else. What would you hope your legacy to be? I never really thought about that. Um, but something like in the military, you know how people say you only live once? That's not the truth. You don't just live once. You only die once. You live every day. So every day that you live, you have to do something impactful. You're not just born to fall in love, have a few kids, get a job, pay your bills, grow and die. That's not why you're here. You have to find out why you're here. And my purpose is easy. It's service. I appreciate you, and I know the neighborhood appreciates you much more than you would ever know. So that's my talk. <laughs> I'm gonna, I am gonna talk more, but I, I've listened to that about four or five times, and I just think it was great. So I really wanted to share it with you. Um, Bernell Cotlin is like an ambassador for generosity, ethics, and wisdom. I think we don't know how many people will be affected by our actions how far reaching uh, the consequences of our actions may be for good or not but i thought his example was a good one for showing what the three pillars look like when they're expressed in one human being so i think brunel cotlin shows us that these wholesome qualities these wonderful qualities these beautiful qualities can be cultivated even in an unwholesome world 
And it can feel like practicing uh, with these is going against the stream. It can take courage and perseverance to go against the stream, but it's how the stream can change its course. The Buddhist magazine Tricycle, some of you may subscribe to, um, a few years ago it sent a writer to interview Sayadaw Upandita, and it was near the last years of his life. He died in 2016. You may know him as a very celebrated Theravada teacher from Myanmar. The tricycle reporter uh, wanted to ask him uh, to give an interview on the topic of impermanence, but Sayadaw Upandita instead offered her a top, the topic of sila. He explained that we must protect, protect the world before it's too late. Our collective situation reflects everyone's conduct. We are each subject to the three poisons, but we're also subject to generosity, compassion, and wisdom. And we need to remember that and not get discouraged when goodwill in the world seems to be hard to find. And there's a poem, a short poem from the Dhammapada about this. Um, It's called Virtue. The perfume of sandalwood, rose bay, or jasmine cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue travels even against the wind as far as the ends of the world. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashion from your life as many good deeds. So I can see that in Brunel Cotlin. Um, we're going to now take a, a look at the three um, pillars in order to understand some of their important qualities. In our tradition, we find generosity at the top of the list of the ten paramis, or ten perfections. These are the beautiful qualities that naturally arise in us. Don't be surprised when you find them in yourself. And you should look for them. Dana is where the Buddha started when he went into a new village and began to teach the lay people. He started there because he believed it was the foundation for morality. Nana, it just it isn't just giving money and time and objects. It can be giving presence, attention, respect, moral support, and sometimes just showing up. The act of giving develops empathy and it involves letting go of clinging and it reduces greed. It leads to putting others before ourselves and it builds connection and community. And as with Burnell Cotlin, the grocer in the story, it can bring us joy when we see others made happier by our, by or benefiting from something we've offered. Giving was and still it is the key, a key to the relationship between the monks and the householders in Buddhist countries like Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka. Traditionally, the monastics offered the teachings freely to the villagers, and the villagers offered food to the monks during their daily alms rounds, as well as on special occasions. The monks had four minimal requisites in addition to food. 
The villagers could give them robes, contribute to their shelter, and offer medicine. The monks couldn't ask for what they wanted or needed. They had to trust that support would be provided and would be good enough. They had to trust in the goodwill of others. This is the practice that our Western Buddhist teachers decided to continue when they uh, introduced Buddhism in our country, our consumer-driven, capitalistic country. It was a challenge, but so far it survives and I think inspires. I remember when I was new to Sims and was introduced to this Buddhist concept of dana, I was a little frustrated. I wasn't being told how much to give for dana. Our founding teacher, Rodney Smith, kept saying that we needed to have a relationship with the dana basket. Recently, I heard one teacher say that he gives to the point of discomfort and a little past it, but not too much past it. Like so many situations with Dhamma, I had to do the work and turn inward to examine my own experience with giving. But that has given me a deeper understanding of generosity, and it's made me contemplate what happens when I'm giving and when I decide not to give. I've noticed that sometimes I have judgments and expectations about giving. I catch myself asking whether the person I'm giving to, quote, deserves it. My gift deserves my gift and wondering what they'll do with it. Do I approve? Do they appreciate my gift enough? I notice that sometimes I feel joy and sometimes I feel resentful when giving. It's like the teacher said, he gives a little past the point of discomfort, but not too much. But what is too much and what's too little? Sometimes I hear the inner voice asking, what about me? I don't have enough. Other times I regret that I missed an opportunity to be generous. And there's a lot to learn by having a relationship with generosity. It relates to the second noble truth of clinging which is the cause of our suffering. It makes us mindful of what is good enough, not too much, just right. Gratitude for what we have seems to go right along with generosity because a feeling of abundance abundance with what we have seems to open us up to share with others and live more simply with less. It also can be wonderful to be the receiver of another person's generosity. Being generous goes both ways. It seems to be a universal key to opening the heart and connecting with one another. We all have things to offer and we all have needs and wants to gratify. A good friend of mine gave me a book for my birthday last summer by Thich Nhat Hanh called Mindfulness Verses for Daily Living, and it's filled with verses pointing to the connections in our life with all beings and all nature. Generosity of attention and gratitude are qualities that are expressed throughout the book. And in that book, I really like this quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. When we have compassion in our hearts and we know that we are able to help a person suffer less, life begins to have more meaning. This is very important food for us and can bring us a lot of joy. A single person is capable of helping many living beings, and it 
is sometimes, and it's something we can do anywhere, anytime. This book had an impact on my life. This was a thoughtful gift, and I know my friend felt happy giving it to me. She also gave me a book for my birthday 20 years ago. I read that book four times within a year, and it eventually led me to take the introduction to meditation class at Sims, and that's had a huge impact on my life. So we don't know what results our actions will have, but giving thoughtfully is something we can do anywhere, anytime, and it makes a difference. Sila is the next pillar. Like generosity, the focus is on kindness and non-harming. It's important to remember that sila in our Buddhist tradition is pragmatic and the focus is on the natural law of actions and consequences, not on judgment, guilt, and punishment. We're asked to look at our actions and their results and not to identify with them. And this is something I forgot to say in the beginning, is that as each of us um, talks about these three pillars this month, well, actually, for the next three months, um, we're all going to kind of give our our personal um, angle. You know, what just stands out for us with these pillars, each one, and to me, this is really important that um, that this is pragmatic. We don't have to be condemned and judge ourselves about what we've done in the past. We just need to try to be better. So um, the five precepts and the Eightfold Path are places where these um, actions uh, are listed in um, the Dhamma. The five precepts, um, and they're, oh, I want to say, and they're all, they're considered trainings. So, you know, the idea is that we're learning. We're not perfect in these. We're learning. That's another point that I think is really important. Um, so they're not, yeah. So the precepts emphasize the training of refraining from and renunciation. There are things that we might really like to do, but we start learning that the impact is not worth it. So we do have to put some brakes on. So these five harmful actions that humans can fall into are one, taking life. And that includes, you know, like pests. And sometimes it includes thinking about eating meat. Um, But again, these are trainings and they are, um, we have to have a relationship to them, just like a relationship with the Donna Basket. The second one is taking what is not offered. The third is sexual misconduct. The fourth, false and harsh speech. And the fifth, taking intoxicants, intoxicants that cloud the mind. The Eightfold Path, on the other hand, refers to the training of developing and cultivating wholesome virtues. And the focus is on right speech, right action, and right livelihood. 
in both situations, both lists, our actions in our daily life matter. And the Buddha asks, Buddha asks us to reflect on um, our actions in the five recollections. And in the five, the five recollections, he says we should re- reflect on every day. And the one that relates to actions is this one, the fifth recollection. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot avoid the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. We must be heedful of our actions and not heedless. Actions, according to the Buddha, are to be done with repeated reflection. In the sutta called Instructions to Rahula, his son, at the mango stone, the Buddha teaches his son Rahula that he must reflect before, during, and after he acts. Acts. He should ask himself, does this action lead to self-affliction, to affliction of others, or to both? Would it be unskillful with painful consequences or skillful with unpleasant, or yeah, skillful with pleasant consequences? I was just thinking about the heedlessness and being heedless and heedlessness. And that is something that um, is very valued in the trainings, really thinking about it. And I was just thinking the other day, um, I've tried to be heedful in um, not uh, taking the life of pests in my house. And um, that I wouldn't be doing if it weren't for the Dhamma. And the other day I looked at something on the wall and I thought, is that a bug or is that just a mark? You know, like a spot that I just should wipe off. And I was really, I just wiped it, and it was a bug. And I thought I was heedless. You know, I heed, heed, being heedful is important. So that was something I was thinking about, the developing of heedlessness as a, as a aspect of sila. Um, where was I now? Oh, I'm over here. Yeah. Training ourselves to act morally is a matter of learning from our actions and understanding the natural consequences of actions. It's not so much the meeting out of punishment or passing judgment. So my favorite story that goes along with this is the story of Angulimala, which you may have heard me tell before, but I just really means a lot to me, so I'm going to share that. Angulimala is the name he got because it's called Finger Necklace. And Angulimala was a notorious outlaw who murdered many and wore their fingers as a necklace. One night, Angulimala met the Buddha on the road and set out to take his life, as was his habit. He tried to catch up with him, calling out, stop, monk, stop, when he saw the Buddha. But the Buddha kept walking away and calmly replied, I have stopped, Angulimala. Now you stop also. The Buddha's response uh, and behavior puzzled Angulimala. He asked, O oh monk, what is the meaning of it? How is it that you have stopped and I have not? To that the Buddha said, Angulimala, I have stopped forever for swearing violence to every living being, but you have no restraint towards anything. So that is why I have stopped and you have not. 
On hearing the Buddha's explanation, Angulimala exclaimed, At long last a sage I can revere. And he swore to renounce all evil on the spot. He threw his sword and weapons aside and bent down to the Buddha's feet, asking for the going forth. The Buddha replied, Come, Bhikkhu. The Buddha accepted him as a monk there and then. This story illustrates to me the goal is to cultivate right action in the present moment, and we're not condemned by our past actions. We need to be aware of unwholesome and harmful behavior and what it brings with it, but self-judgment and guilt will not move us toward virtue and harmlessness. Angulimala became the venerable Angulimala, uh, Angulimala, an arahant, free of all defilements and fetters, and like the Buddha, destined for no further rebirth. But the consequences of his actions did follow him. When he went out for alms, people sometimes threw rocks and sticks at him. And the Buddha reminded him, bear it, Brahman, bear it. You have experienced here and now in this life the ripening of deeds. Angulimala is said to have then exclaimed, who once did live in recklessness and then is reckless nevermore, shall light the world like the full moon when clouds unmask it. There are some that tame with beatings and some with goads and some with lashes. One who has neither rod nor weapon, I am tamed by such as he. So the Buddha didn't react with horror or hatred to Angulimala. His compassion and equanimity helped him to see through appearances to what Angulimala truly needed to transform. The Buddha's compassion helped him understand that Angulimala was actually suffering himself because of the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, which had taken root in him. And I just wanted to read a couple of um, phrases uh, that we can use. We just had a forgiveness ceremony at Sims, which we do that every year. And these are some phrases that I think are helpful with sila and ethics. And they're from another Buddhist teacher, Eric Kolvig. This is for self-forgiveness. I allow myself to be imperfect. I allow myself to make mistakes. I allow myself to be a learner, still learning life's lessons. I forgive myself for the harm I have done to myself. And then this can be used with forgiving others. Just as I allow myself to be imperfect, so I allow you to be imperfect. I allow you to be a learner, still learning life's lessons. I forgive you. And if I cannot forgive you now, may I forgive you sometime in the future. So the third pillar is wisdom, and I see we're running out of time. Uh, Sometimes referred to as bhavana, which includes the practice of meditation. The link between apanya and sila seems clear because it's hard to have a peaceful mind when the heart is contracted around greed, hatred, or delusion, shame, guilt, or remorse. We can't see clearly how we are causing harm if we're not actively being present to our experience in the moment without adding anything. We can't reflect before, during, and after our actions effectively. We need to see clearly through the distortions of our perceptions and see through the dishonesty of our rationalizations. We need to recognize, oh, that was not right. That was not okay. 
That is not the way I want to be in the world. We also need to remember what Seda Upadita said, that although we are each subject to the three poisons, we are also subject to generosity, compassion, and wisdom. And we need to acknowledge and honor the way we act in the world through these qualities. Two, so often here in the West, we focus more on our trespasses than on our goodness. We often discount or overlook what we consider to be small acts that don't matter that much. Instead, we need to connect with these moments and pay attention to their effects and their value. We need to look inward and see how we feel in body, mind, and heart at these times. And imagine how the beings that might benefit from our wholesome, kind way might be feeling too. The last thing I want to say about wisdom is that uh, the key to wisdom in our tradition is a hipposico, that we are not, um, we are not, um, you know, pledging allegiance to a set of rules by a superior um, who gives us all the answers. We have to validate every aspect of the Dhamma through our own understanding based on our own experience, intelligence, and insight. And I think that's probably what makes this third pillar so such a sturdy pillar. By oneself, this is from the Dhamma. By oneself is evil left undone. By oneself is one purified. Purity and defilement depend on oneself. No one can purify another. So generosity, uh, sila, wisdom, the three pillars are beautiful qualities that we can have faith in and that we can, that they will hold us upright. And they they shine on the world. So I went over my time, but that's probably because of the seven minute story. But I that was so important to share. So um, at this point, um, we can have a, a sh- um, breakout groups, and if you need to leave. Okay, I think everybody's back. So we have a few minutes. If um, anyone would like to share anything that they shared in the group or something else, you can unmute yourselves. Put your hand up. But yeah, just unmute yourself if you'd like. What do you think about these pillars? I told my group that I'm just really glad that we are ending the year on an upswing of, <laughs> um, and going to get some some good messages, which not that the others have been bad messages, but it's been been hard. <laughs> these last um, three months. And so this is really, this is nice. Yeah. Good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Anyone have a favorite pillar? (laughs) 
I wish people in my group would share because their stories were beautiful about putting all of this into action and how it has affected their lives. So I invite them to do that if they'd like to. It's really lovely. Thank you, Suze. Yes, please share something to um, brighten up Sue, too. Uh, I was going to throw out there that I think for me it's it was interesting because I think um, hearing each of the three pillars, I was sort of seeing the poison side, I think was kind of where my mind went to. Um, like I think with generosity, I was kind of seeing more of my own greed, um, just thinking about that as a topic. So it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, I'm, I agree with Sue. I'm excited to, to talk about these three um, and, and learn more, but it's interesting how they're intertwined and connected. Yeah, and that's why I brought up, you know, like those 10 perfections and parmies. Part of practicing with them is looking for them in, in ourselves and not always, you know, because it seems like sometimes we feel like we might be conceited or, you know, that it seems like our tendency is to go towards where we air, not where we really are kind, you know, and it's important to see that in ourselves. Because, you know, as the Buddha says with, or as we say with uh, metta, you have to care about yourself first, and you have to be valuing yourself, and that spreads outward, that feels abundance, you know, it makes us feel more abundant and more willing to to extend our caring to others. And um, yeah, that's part of the practice of the paramis is to say, yeah, I really have generosity in my heart, you know, and not discount it and say it doesn't matter. Yes, um, Thomas. I think you need to unmute, Thomas. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and one of the things that I'm I'm inspired by um, in, in these three um, pillars are the kind of go go try for yourself. Don't look for authorities to want you or tell you what's right. I think it's it puts you puts me in a place of of experimenting and in, in, in sort of in a space where I, I I try try something. I I have the intention of doing something right or doing something good and. I might learn that, oh, that didn't really land so well, and I'm, I'm not, I don't want to do it again. So what am I learning from that? What would be a better course of action? So it's sort of the trying, experimenting without judging and not judging myself, but just sort of learn and then pick it up again and do something different is, is really helpful. Where I, I see, before I was into the Dharma, I think I would have blamed myself more and perhaps stop the experimenting. <laughs> that blame would have been sort of sort of a break. Uh, and so it's it kind of it's almost it's sort of a lab, lab laboratory in a way for action, which I found very uh, very fruitful. Yeah, I totally agree, and that's why I think that it um, that sutta where the it's shown how the Buddha was teaching his son. You know, you just have to, it is an experiment. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. And you you use that, all that information. And that's that ahipasiko, you know, that we, 
it's not just a rule set in stone, you know, like once. And in fact, I was just reading um, a book about Ajahn Chah's life and how he worked with the monks and the monks were following one of the monk guidelines and they were kind of saying this was bad behavior about this monk and and so this consequence should happen and then Ajahn Chah you know just said well in this particular context which really is the the right um um which is most right and you have to go by each context really and you really have to see for yourself you really have to be mindful that's how wisdom that that's how we build wisdom. So it's really a rich, um, rich practice, I think, and studying it. So I like the way you explained it as a laboratory. I think that is true. Um, okay, so we're nearing the end now. So I I thank you very much, Thomas, and all of you for staying to discuss in your groups, um, and I'm. Glad that um, I also am glad we're <laughs> ending on an, an up note here. Um, so I'm going to do some announcements. Uh, the most important one first.